Notice seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now remember, Samuel is a Levite. He is the only one who should be doing any sacrificing. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature is unique. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. Today on Truth in Christ, our scripture says, And he offered the burnt offering. This was plainly sinful. First, Saul plainly disobeyed Samuel. Second, Saul was a king, not a priest, and only priests were to offer sacrifices. Saul had no business doing what only a priest should do. History shows how dangerous it is to combine religious and civic authority, and God would not allow the kings of Israel to be priests and the priests to be kings. There is only one king who became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and that is Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's message. And it says here 30,000 chariots, but um, it's very likely that it's 3,000, 3,000 instead of 30,000, and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude, and they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And so now they've got these 3,000 chariots of iron, 6,000 horsemen, and the Israelites weren't even supposed to be on horseback. So now you've got these chariots that are, that are pulled by horses, and then you've got separate horsemen, and then you've got people on their feet. And so now they're in real trouble from their perspective. But isn't it true that whenever all the odds are against you, that's when God loves to show up? That's when he loves to get the glory Because if your heart is single toward him and you put your faith and trust in him, believe me, there is nothing that the enemy can do to you. There is nothing that the enemy can do to his people if they are walking in faith and and holy impurity before him. God will see to it that they are taken care of. And he shows it throughout the scriptures. We see it. And there are also times when when they fall into idolatry, when they're doing horrible things. And then God allows them to be taken captive. He allows them to lose a few battles, to get their nose bloodied a little bit when they've been disobedient. And so obedience is the key. Obedience to God. We'll look at that later. So in verse 6, When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, and naturally so, they didn't have horses. They certainly didn't have iron instruments. They didn't even have swords. They had mattocks, pickaxes, little things with golds with little nails stuck on the end or whatever. You know, they had these primitive kind of instruments, and now they're going against these, this army that's got their act together. You know, it's like bringing a knife to a gun show. 
They were distressed, and then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And believe me, I've been to Israel three times so far, and I love that land. And um, when you, if you do go there and you travel down from Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, you'll notice on that trip all the way down, and there's mountains, ranges, and, the, and the, the Jordan River flowing through the center all the way down. On each side, you'll notice that there's cliffs and rocks, and for miles and miles and miles, there's places where you could hide in rocks and holes and little things. They're everywhere, folks. They're everywhere, even today. They're everywhere. Down there in the Dead Sea, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, cave, you know, cave 4 of Qumran, where they found the, the Isaiah Scroll, a complete Isaiah Scroll that predated a thousand years, the oldest manuscript they had. And other manuscripts, too. They found them there in, those, in the Dead Sea. But in that area, around Qumran, rocks. I mean, you could take you forever to examine all of them and crawl into them. I would love to do that one day, though. Just go up there and get lost grab a canteen of water, my gun, and go. And just have a, and, 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 and some kind of shovel in a, in a tent and, and maybe some beef jerky, and I'd be happy. But that'd be a lot of fun. But so they, the people are distressed now. They see the Philistines coming, and they're like, we're going to hide out in the rocks. We're going to do whatever we can. And so, verse 7, some of the Hebrews, they even cross over the Jordan. So they even go east. If you're looking at a map of Israel, the Jordan River comes right, through, right down the center of it, and then to the east of it, is the, 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 the Gilead, Mount Gilead, and that mountain range there. And so some of the people are even crossing over Jordan and getting out of Israel altogether and going over into the area that we know belonged to the children of Gad. And as for Saul, it says in verse 7, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, noticed trembling. They were trembling because they were scared, and fear is a good thing. Fear is not a bad thing. God gave us that sense of fear to keep us out of trouble, to keep us out of danger. It depends on what you do with that fear. If you let it dominate you, then you got a problem. But we ought not to live completely in fear. But there may be times where you experience fear. You know, if you're walking down the street at night, down on North Clinton Avenue, and you're by yourself, and you see four or five guys coming up kind of quickly behind you, you've got reason to fear. Right? Hopefully you can outrun them. Right? But notice in verse 8, So Saul, he waited seven days there at Gilgal. He waited seven days there. According to the time set by Samuel, notice this time was set by Samuel. Samuel told him, actually, in chapter 10, verse 8, you remember, we've already gone through this, but Samuel told him, and this was the great test of Saul, of his obedience. Remember what, I'll read to you what Samuel said to Saul in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 8. He says, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down. Notice the promise that Samuel said to, to Saul, surely I will come down to you to offer the burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Notice, seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now remember, Samuel's a Levite. He is the only one who should be doing any sacrificing, right? He's the only one because he's a Levite. That's what he did from his youth up until that time. He would be part of the, of the, of the temple uh, rites of, of, of slaughtering the animals and emptying their blood and going through that whole thing. But not, Sam, not Saul. Saul was from Benjamin. He was, a ben, he was from Benjamin. Samuel was a Levite. So he tells Saul, 
to go down to Gilgal and wait for me seven days. Remember that. So verse 9, he says, So Saul said, um, you know, uh, let me reread verse 8. It says, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel, notice, did not come to Gilgal like he promised, although he will come. And the people were scattered from him. So now his army of ten th- or 2,000 people, they're, they're sitting there. They're waiting for Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifice and, and, and pray to God and see what the direction is for this, you know, this battle that they're about to get into, which is very smart, by the way. So now his men are getting really scared, and some of them are starting to desert Saul. And Saul's sitting there, and it's like the seventh day, and he's like, Okay, Samuel, where are you at? Where are you? Where are you? And so verse 9, Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And then notice what happened. He offered the burnt offering. Saul was acting like an autocrat. Instead of just being the king, now he was over usurping his authority and going into the priesthood as well. The priests were supposed to do that, not the king. The kings were from Judah, except he was from Benjamin. Long story there, but he wasn't supposed to do that. But he takes it upon himself to do it. And notice in verse 10, Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So in the 11th hour, you can see this. Have you been in the 11th hour of something where you've had to wait? Somebody said, I'll meet you here at a certain time. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. You're looking at your clock and you're like, oh my gosh, come on, hurry up. And then they show up right at the last second, the last minute, and you're like, oh. Have you ever been brought to the 11th hour in anything, anything that's been important to you? Have you been brought to the 11th hour? Right at the point when you're about ready to give up, you're about ready to throw in the towel and say, I've had it, I'm done. Have you been to that place? I've been there a number of times, and I know that I'll be there again and again. Sometimes the Lord will bring us to the 11th hour before he brings deliverance or answers prayer. And it's not because he's cruel, but rather in the process of that, what happens to our faith? It grows. It grows. And that process of our faith growing is so important to God. And it's really good for us. We don't like when we go through it. Nobody likes to go through that. Nobody likes to go through times of of trial and to go through times of testing But there's an old adage that says that a faith that cannot be uh, tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And Saul needed to be tested as a new king. He needed to go through. His metal had to be tested. And one thing with the Lord, the ends never justify the means. Have you heard that phrase? The ends never justify the means? Certainly there's a way to get something done, but the process of getting from from here to that whatever end is, the process is important. If you can get get to this point by cheating or lying or doing something else, and then you do it another way, and it's doing it the right way, but it might take you a little longer. See, God is more concerned about how you go about the end rather than just getting to the end. You get my point. Do you get my point? 
There are all kinds of ways to get to the end of something, but it's the process in between that God is in. That's the part that we are responsible for, and that's the thing that he's looking for. He's not so much concerned about the end. He can get you to the end, but we've got to do it his way and in his time. See, God is more concerned, again, just about the process and the, than the, and the journey as he is the end result. And I believe the Lord especially likes to deliver when we are boxed in and he is our only hope. There are no other resources. We've burned all of our resources. We've gone through all of our resources. Our credit cards are all maxed out. Our line of credit is all maxed out. And then we find ourselves in a place where we got to really trust in God. And I've been in situations like that where God did do something amazing a number of times, and maybe you've had the same things happen to you, but do you trust him? Or do you trust your, 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 your accounts and the things that you have set up? Do you trust in your credit line more than you trust in God? Do you trust in your credit card more than you trust in God? I would encourage you that when something breaks, instead of running to the creditors, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? These kinds of things happen all the time, and then somebody in the body has an extra dryer or or washer and dryer that they're no longer using, and it just so happens that it's right around the time when yours broke. Hmm. I wonder if God's in that. Ah, Probably just a coincidence. Of course he's in it. These kind of things happen all the time. It's important. And sometimes God, he observes us putting all of our hopes in our other resources and in our own ingenuity or resourcefulness before he finally says, okay, now that you're done doing what you can do, watch what I can do. You see, God is a jealous God. And jealousy is, from a husband and wife, jealousy can be bad, but jealousy from God's perspective is good because God is good. And it says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, God says, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Do you hear that? He's a jealous God. He's not going to give his praise, his honor to anyone. He alone deserves the credit. And that's why I love it when we, as, as Christians, when we come to the end of ourselves, and we find ourselves, we kind of blocked in, and we don't see any way out, and we just cry out to God, and then he delivers us. And what are you going to do with that? Are you going to go around and tell everybody, hey, you know what, uh, because you know, I'm a real smooth guy and I knew this was going to happen, so I, I built up a hedge fund and whatever, and I, I bailed myself out. Or are you going to say, you know what, I was, completely, I was completely in a mess. I was completely consumed in this issue, and God alone got me out of it. He alone got me out of it. And people are like, what? Yeah, God got me out of it. I know each one of you have stories of some kind. But these things are important, folks. This is where our relationship with Christ is so important. Put him on the front always. And you honor him when you do that. We honor him when we put him first in all things. When we put him last, it doesn't really honor him. Can he still deliver and will he? Yeah, he he can and he does. Because he loves you. He's not angry with you. But there is a process that we have to go through, and it usually isn't real easy sometimes. In fact, sometimes it can be downright excruciating, but he can be with you in it if you choose to let him. And here's an example. Remember when the Israelites, when they fled out of Egypt, there they go. They, they leave Ramesses or wherever they're at, and they, and they go across. They finally, you know, they spend 40, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, ba- I'm going too far here. As they leave Egypt, Pharaoh 
decides to go after them anyway. And so the children of Israel, they are there, right there by the Red Sea, and they've got mountains on each side, and they've got only one way to go. And Pharaoh and his armies are coming down on them. They can see the cloud coming, and you remember what God did. They had, they were hemmed in by the desert, the Bible says. There was no way out. They were going to get clobbered with these chariots from Egypt, and they were going to smoke these Israelites. And they were going to die, and they knew it, and they were shaking in their boots. And God told um, Moses, says, Moses, um, take that rod that's in your hand, and I want you to hold it out over opposite the Red Sea. And what did Moses do? Did he argue with God? <laughs> Are you kidding me, God? Can't you just turn this thing into a, a you know, an M, you know, uh, one of those submachine guns on a turret with all the unlimited number of bullets, and I'll just take these guys out? He's like, no, just take your rod that's in your hand and rise it up. And what happened? He parted the Red Sea. Water on each side, and they crossed over on dry land. Figure that one out. God got them through, and the, the Egyptians followed them, and he covered them and destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. There's actually... Remnants of that on the sea. They found remnants of the chariot wheels that are encrusted with barnacles. I've seen them. Notice in verse 11, though, it says, Now Samuel said, What have you done? What have you done by offering the sacrifices, Saul? That, that you're a Benjamite. You ought to know better. Uh, the king doesn't offer a sacrifice. That is specifically the job of the Levites. And so Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw, notice, underline that, when I saw, because Saul is the kind of guy who really operates on more what he sees rather than by faith. And see, that's a dangerous thing. If, you're, if everything you believe is just by what you see, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. Then there's no faith, because if you can see it, why do you have faith? But what does it say in Hebrews? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The evidence of things not yet seen. It almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because if you have evidence, that means you have physical evidence. But this is saying faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's, it's like having the evidence before you see it yet. You can't explain that to anybody but when you operate in faith and you see it come to pass and you see what God does, then you're like, oh, wow, that's really something. And it encourages your faith, doesn't it? So Saul was more of a man of sight than a man of faith. Unlike his son, Jonathan, Jonathan was more of a man of faith than he was. But notice in this uh, verse 11, we see three different excuses that Saul gives in his disobedience. Number one is that he saw the people scattering from him as a king. That's pretty dis, uh, un, uh, disheartening to see the 2,000 men that were around you, and all of a sudden they're getting discouraged, and they're starting to go home. And he's like, i got to do something. i got to do something. And then number two, Samuel didn't come when the days were appointed. But he did come, didn't he? He came at the 11th hour. He came on the seventh day. And number three, the Philistines were gathered at Michmash, so now they're starting to get a little concerned. You'll learn in Saul's life that he very rarely owns up to anything. He's always blaming somebody else for his problems. He's always looking at somebody else. He's always blaming somebody else. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 15. But notice in verse 12 here, it says, Then I said, the Philistines, now Saul is speaking here. He said, I saw the Philistines. Now, now they will come down on me at Gilgal and have not made suppli- and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled. Underline that word. I felt compelled 
because you're going to see really where Saul is. He's really showing his true colors now. And he says, And therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Excuses, excuses, excuses. That was Saul of Benjamin. A couple of things to look at here. We know that Saul, because he was from the tribe of Benjamin, we already looked at this briefly, he had no business making sacrifices. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 6, it says, Behold, God speaking, says, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. So Levi is one of the other 12 tribes of the children of Israel. He says, I have taken them. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons, you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. And I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. That's how serious God took it. They were supposed to do all those things, the sacrifices, taking care of the tabernacle, tearing it down, rearing it up when they would, when they would move around. It was all for them. That was their service to the Lord. Saul had no business doing that. We'll see another king. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll see another king by the name of Jeroboam who did the very same thing. He was a king of the northern 12 tribe or northern 10 tribes. And what did he do? He made altars in Bethel and in Dan and he made sacrifices to the abominations, to the idols of the land. He was one of the, probably one of the most wicked kings in Israel that Israel ever had, Jeroboam. He did the very same thing that Saul did. Notice that he said at the bottom of that verse, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. The situation, rather than um, uh, obedience to God, uh, the situation was what was motivating Saul rather than a motivation to be obedient to God. He was sizing it up in the natural, and that was what was propelling him, compelling him, rather than obedience to God. A situation like, uh, excuse me, situations like this have a tendency to expose our impatience, don't they? And our disobedience. It was a perfect storm for Saul. He was in a pinch, and he was sizing it up in the natural. This is what I call a crisis of obedience. Have you ever been in a crisis of obedience? I've had several of these in my life, perhaps you have too, where situations arise quickly that prove where your heart and your faith really is at. You're, you're, you're forced to respond quickly to something, and the devil loves to do that. He loves to make you think that you've got to do it now. If you don't do it now, you're going to miss out on this opportunity. It'll never come back. And you know, sometimes there are situations like that where a situation will come up, and it may be, happen only once. But do you believe that if God wants something for you at that time, if he really, if it's his will for you, do you think he's going to give you another opportunity to get it? I do. It's always dangerous when you act on the fly and, and feel pressured to do something. You're like, okay, okay, let's just do it this way. And then you do it and you find out you've made a grave error. Never make decisions like that. When possible, get away and, and get some time to think about it. Pray about it before you make decisions, especially big ones. Little ones too, but the big ones are the ones that are even the most costly because they affect you quicker sometimes. And so it's a, it's a, it's a crisis of obedience for Saul here because now he was told to wait. 
All he had to do was wait. And yes, he was taken to the eleventh hour, but he had to, he should have been obedient to God. And like I said, God will often bring you to the end, right to the eleventh hour. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.